Hey everyone, we are sharing a new podcast today and every day this week to celebrate our Zen Parenting Summit. Our free and virtual summit began on January 31st and ends on February 4th. And it's based around Kathy's new book, Zen Parenting, Caring for Ourselves and Our Children in an Unpredictable World. It comes out on February 1st. In addition to talking about Kathy's book, we have 15 thought leaders over five inspiring days, a great way for parents to start their year with confidence and optimism. Go to the show notes or zenparentingradio.com if you haven't already registered for the summit. Once again, it's free. And enjoy our daily podcast this week where we dive into each chapter of Kathy's new book. All you need to do is register with your first name, last name, and email address. So now on with the show. Here we go. This is Todd. This is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is the second installment of the book club. What do we call this, sweetheart? Yeah, it's it's part of the. I'm renaming myself because it said. Todd yeah. Adams. Now it's Kathy There's Adams. There's only one Todd Adams. Yeah, I, I know that. So basically, this is a part of our virtual summit. Thank you. Um, and it is also, we're releasing it as a podcast um, because we want to talk about the chakras that are in my book because they are... The framework. The Chakras are the framework, but underneath each chakra are some issues that are... Um, pertain to parenting, self-awareness, um, our own mental well-being. And so we wanted to go through those things so people had a better understanding of what this book has in it. So if you, for whatever reason, want to see us instead of just listen to us, you can um, register for the summit and get access to the video. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you'd want to see our mugs instead of just listening to our voices, but that is the one kind of thing that's different about um, what we're doing here versus a normal Tuesday podcast. Mm-hmm. So um, it's chakra two. And we're, um, if you're looking at the video, this is Kathy's book. It's called Zen Parenting, Caring for Ourselves and Our Children in an Unpredictable World. And we've already done one, and this is our second one. Chakra two is titled Being Creative. I don't know if it's titled that, but you have in the description underneath mm-hmm. it Being Creative, Accessing Emotions, Experiencing Pleasure. And do you want to say where the second chakra is located? Yeah, it's sometimes called the sacral chakra, but it's right below the belly button. It's like a womb area, you know, the womb. Um, And really this... uh, Do boys have wombs? Well, that area, like you you don't have... Let's call it genitals. (laughs) You, well, it's, it's kind of... Reproductive organs. It is. It's the reproductive organs, but it's really this whole, like right underneath your solar plexus. Okay. Okay. So it's like this area where, um, yeah, it part of that is our actual body parts, but it's just that energy center. Um, and it's basically what contains our right to feel. Okay. So it's really the second chakra has a lot to do with feel. And our feelings overall and what we feel in our bodies and the whole concept of pleasure, which I think is a really um, interesting conversation. Probably sometimes ignored topic. Well, yeah. Like, I'm I'm curious. Like, I don't know, you know, if you're, like, interviewing me here. Oh, I got questions, Oh, sweetie. good. Because, like, I good. think it's, like, worth having a conversation about it. I'm glad that you um, – I didn't write that down. It's the right to feel. Chakra two, the right mm-hmm. to feel. 
Um, and then I'm going to quiz you. Do you know what color it is? Orange. Very good. Yes. And then this is the quote that you chose to lead or introduce this topic. What makes the engine go? Desire, desire, desire. It was written by a guy named Stanley Kunitz. And he wrote a book called... I think it was Poetry. <laughs> That's the name of the book. That was the longest intro. The oh, Doors. It was not the longest intro, sweetie. I know. I was just going to say the Doors are awesome. End do of sentence. The longest intros to their songs, and they're almost like now funny to me. I love the Doors, Todd. I'm not ripping on yeah, the Doors. Yeah, yeah. Take it easy. They're like Todd's favorite band in the world. I totally get it. Um, but it's just that took a really long time. We were playing. Uh, some karaoke on Friday night and we're doing a bunch of Taylor Swift stuff. And then I jokingly put on a song called shine on you crazy diamond, which is a quick 11 minute spin. And it takes about six or seven minutes for words to start that. But I was thinking more about how you were doing that, uh, door song where Jim talks oh, at the beginning. Yeah. That was making me laugh really this is hard. The end. Yeah. You, I got you on that It one. was, this is the end live, right? Well, there, I wasn't even playing it. I was just saying it. That's what I mean. Like, but his whole like monologue at the beginning of that, it's a live version of the end. Is that right? Or am I? No, in the studio version, he says. He uh, does all that? Yeah. Oh, geez, Jim. And he came to a door <laughs> and he looked inside. Father, yes, son, I want to kill you. Probably not appropriate for a Zen parenting chakra two podcast. So, well, you know. Yeah. So here's the deal. You have this broken up into a few different sections. Yeah. Pleasure. Yep. Emotional intelligence. Yep. Creativity and play. Yeah. And sexuality. Yes. We are going to discuss hopefully all of them. Okay. And... Um, I first want to start where you start, which is pleasure. And you talk a little bit about the difference between socialization, women's socialization regarding pleasure versus men. And um, you say women are taught that too much pleasure may bring social disgrace. So it has to be measured and portioned. You can have sex, but only the right kind of sex with the right kind of people. You can eat food, but only a little of it at the right time and only if you stay thin. I wonder if you will expound on that. Well, I mean, pleasure is really interesting when we talk about women. Um, it can be very, I think I spent like two pages trying to define or at least explain in some way the nuance when it comes to pleasure and especially around women, because I think that men... Um, and again, I'm going to speak very generally because yep. exceptions and I, both ways. And I also want to speak about all genders that I don't yep. think that this is, you know, Todd and I try and make sure that we're being all inclusive in our language. So everybody feels like they're being spoken to um, right now. The, the language I'm going to use is very gender specific just because it's cultural conditioning. Mm. So that's why I'm going this route is that typically, traditionally, men are given a lot of props for seeking pleasure. A lot of freedom. And and a lot of like, good job. Oh yeah. Do you know what I mean? We get rewarded. The more girls uh, that I um, hook up with, uh, the higher I am on the social ladder. And if, you know, there is a pizza and a bunch of guys are sharing a pizza, there's a lot of like, we're going to finish this. We're going to crush this. I mean, you even do that. Like, you know, you are the man in a family of 
me and then our three daughters. So and a, lot a, fe- of, and a female rabbit and a female rabbit. So Todd does a lot of that. Like, you know, we'll be done eating and he'll be like, we got to finish it. We got to finish it as if there's like a competition that, that some great being is watching over us and they're upset that we haven't finished the pizza. Like you've been like taught, trained, you, you make eating conquer conquer and you make it a competition and you like to conquer is a great word that's it this piece is here for me to, to conquer. conquer and you feel like you haven't done that and it's quite the opposite for girls and women is there are sometimes that that can be fun for us but conditioning in our society is you can have some but not too much you can enjoy it a little bit but not too much you can do this but only if it's in the right way like there's a lot of restrictions around what should be pleasurable to us and um and i you know there's a lot of books already out there about women's sexuality and about women's pleasure uh dr alexandra solomon has a really good book that i love called taking sexy back um where she talks that's all the book is about you know women's pleasure esther perel has a lot of writing podcasts about women's pleasure i only get to do like five pages about it or however many pages um but i find it to be a really interesting setup in how it can be confusing for women. Like, you know, one of the stories I tell is that a lot of women come to me and they talk about these guilty pleasures that they have. And just that language alone, they feel guilty about having pleasures. (laughs) They feel, and, and men may say this too, but it's around things like, oh, I watch The Bachelorette or The Bachelor and I don't want anyone to know. It's my, it's my guilty pleasure. Or I still read this magazine. It's my guilty pleasure. Or, Um, You know, at night, I have these certain cookies by myself. Nobody knows. It's my guilty pleasure. It's like we hide things we enjoy. And we do that because there's a lot of belief that we either shouldn't have too much or there's a right way to be. Like I have always been very forthcoming about the kind of music I like. Like I really like a band, like a boy band, like Backstreet Boys. Love them. Always have. And there's a lot of people who will come up to me and be like, I don't tell anybody, but I like them too. <laughs> like it's, why Why are we being secretive about this? I mean, and maybe there's a coolness issue, but it's like sometimes the things we like, we feel like we have to hide it. Can, and, I, can I read a quote sure. from you? The most vital understanding is that pleasure is about treating yourself well and not about numbing yourself. Eating cake and enjoying how great it tastes is pleasure. Eating cake to run away and dull, painful emotions is not... We're going to talk about emotions in a second. Having sex that is mutual while present and engaged is pleasure. Having sex that is unwanted, disconnected, or a tool for validation is not. Pleasure is about being fully present and alive in the moment. Correct. So it is something that is con- that you are consenting to. It is something that you truly enjoy, not something that somebody else is telling you you should enjoy. It is something that makes you feel free and not constricted. Um, there's all sorts of, of nuance to it. And the reason why this is so difficult is that feeling of freedom or that we can make our own choices is sometimes does not feel natural to women. And maybe, you know, Todd, I like having this conversation with you because you may feel like you're very similar, that sometimes you have a hard time taking pleasure in the things you enjoy. For I don't sure. know. Well, yeah. I would say as, as a guy... You know, I've said this so many times that the the most encouraged emotion that we that is okay to express is anger. Yeah. And obviously, fear. You know, you're not a tough guy if, if you're afraid, mm-hmm. and you're not a tough guy if you're sad. Unless a sports figure dies or your dad dies, then it's okay. Or you lose a game. Or you lose a game. Mm-hmm. But even if you lose a game, you got to man up. Yeah. And then even joy. 
is mm-hmm. something that we are not encouraged to express. And that's one that I try to focus on, which is, you know, can we just like be joyful? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, that's a wonderful segue into the second section mm-hmm. of chakra two, which mm-hmm. is emotional intelligence. Yeah. And you write in the book, you obviously referenced Daniel Goleman, and maybe you'll tell us who he is in a second, but I believe he defines it as this person's ability to be aware regulate and share emotions and then use this ability to understand and relate to others. Mm -hmm. So Daniel Goleman wrote the book about emotional intelligence, but he didn't um, identify that language. That was actually two other men. Are are you on the page where it says their names? Uh, Oh yeah. Peter Solovi and Mm -hmm. John Mayer. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, John Mayer does a lot of things. (laughs) Not that John. Oh, is it a different one? Yeah. Not John Mayer. You know, he's headlining the dead tour still. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I believe you. Um, I know that he is, has done that in the past and he's continuing to do it. He's doing it right now. Because somebody was just there. That's what they were just telling me. They were there. Got it. And, the, and John Mayer was the was the lead singer. But anyway, um, those two guys came up with the terminology. Daniel Goleman brought it mainstream when he wrote a book about it way back, I think, in the 80s. Um, and basically, emotional intelligence, what we know about it now, and I'm going to be very general when I talk about it because you can find all the you know stats and information in the book, is that what we know about it is that it's actually more important than your IQ when determining future success. So it's so interesting that we set kids up on the adventure of the most heightened IQ from the time that they're born. We're very focused on grades, test scores, um, attendance. Preschools, kindergartens, high schools, colleges. IQ, 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 which is a measurement of your intellectual abilities. like, And really, it's about your processing speed. Um, really, it's about your ability to memorize. It's about these things that not everybody does really well, but it doesn't mean that they don't understand the information. It's just they may be able to articulate it or talk about it either in a more, uh, in a slower pace or in a different manner. Like, you know, some people can uh, actually speak about a topic very well, but then when they're given a multiple choice test, it doesn't work as well. You know, so we have different ways of articulating what we know, but anyway. Maybe this would be a good time to at least talk about, not talk about, but at least share a very dated documentary, but yet unbelievably important, which is the race to nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's dated in that it's been around for a while, but I don't think the information is Probably over 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll be relevant yeah. In a hundred years. Yeah. Todd and I like still say all the time, we'll be like, it's just a race to nowhere. Yeah. Or school is a game that you have to play yeah, and we don't minimize the importance of schoolwork. But, um, I think a lot of us, myself included, sometimes overvalues the intellect and mm-hmm. undervalues the emotional intelligence. Well, and that's because once you are out of the school game, once you are done with college or grad school and not everybody's looking at your grades and your test scores that doesn't really matter anymore. I mean, yes, it does if you are still processing information like in a specific um, kind of job, like an engineer or a doctor. Obviously, I know people could say, but what about this? And I could say, yeah, that's still super important. But most jobs after you get out of school are about how you self-regulate, 
how you manage people, how you understand other people's perspective, how you get along with others in the workplace, how you identify challenges that people are having. And all of that is emotional intelligence. So it's like, once you get out of school, you have to have all these social emotional skills that a lot of times the schools aren't even taking into consideration. And a lot of times as parents, we haven't focused on it enough to even remind our kids what's most important. Like I remember you and I did a show, Todd, several, several years ago about some study where kids were asked, what's most important to my parents, me getting an A or being kind? And most kids said me getting an A. Mm -hmm. And now those parents may say, no, 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 it's really that you're being kind. But what their kids are feeling or what they are integrating from their day-to-day experience at school and with their parents is that they are their grades. Yeah. Um, So the other thing, um, good and bad feelings. I'm going to read this. Many of us are taught that some feelings are good and some are bad, but in all reality, all feelings are important to have purpose. Avoiding emotions deemed bad buys short-term gain at the price of long-term pain. I wonder if you can talk more about that. Yeah. So basically what you are reading is the fact that we have decided in society that some emotions are okay and some emotions we don't want to feel or we're going to deny. And again, it's culturally um, typical or we are encouraged to like, if we're feeling grief to move on in 24 hours so we can get back to work. Or if we have, if we are struggling with something that someone will give us a few hours to think about it, but then we better move on. Or just the fact that we get sad we are, we don't even need culture to tell us or society. We get, we're hard on ourselves as if we shouldn't feel sad, as if there's something wrong with us, if we feel sad. And the whole idea is that every emotion we have is a message and an arrow. It's like giving us information about what we're experiencing. And it's also pointing us in the direction that we need to go. But we're so afraid of having certain feelings that society has deemed bad or negative that we're unwilling to even have them and we repress them. And then they often come out in behavior ways or in physical ways. Because if you're having an emotion, you can't just pretend you're not having it and move on. It's going to it's going to put itself somewhere in your body or somewhere in your mind, or it's going to leak out through your behavior. Like emotions is energy and motion. That's where the word comes from, energy and motion. And an emotion is just an energy that needs to move through. It just needs to be recognized. So now we're going to get into modeling a little bit. And there's a paragraph in here. It says, this is why we struggle so much when our children are in pain, because Mm -hmm. we love them and don't want to see them hurt, but also because their their pain brings up our own. I think that there's a lot in that sentence. Um, You know, I think the very standard response would be like, I just don't like seeing my kid in pain because um, I too know what it's like to feel pain. So I want to like alleviate that from them, which isn't a good thing to do because pain is how we sometimes learn. Not that we choose to make sure that they have it, but when it happens, can we allow for it? But secondly, it's about the pain that we feel when we see them in pain. So in other words, instead of us dealing with our own sadness, anger, fear, when we observe that our kids are in pain, we just leap over our own feelings and just try to fix their own. And usually that's intergenerational. Like that's something that was taught to us. So when we were young and we fell down, there was probably an adult in our life who said, oh, get up, you know, dust yourself off. You're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. So we were taught 
to move on from a big feeling, especially a feeling that, you know, is like sadness or disappointment or embarrassment, and to just pretend we were okay. Because really, that's what the adults were telling us to do, right? You're fine. Pretend you're okay. They may not have used that word pretend, but that was the message that we got. You're fine. You're fine. You know, you're just, you're exaggerating. You're being dramatic. And so there was no acknowledgement of that in us. And so we learned to repress it. So when we see our children having that emotional expression, even though we don't have all of this, this, this doesn't necessarily all come up at once, but sometimes it's this feeling of, I didn't get to feel that. I don't know how to feel that. So you're not going to feel it either. You know, we, and and it's not intentional to hurt anybody. I want to be clear. It's not like we're trying to harm our kids. You know, a lot of times the things we pass down to our children, we're not even aware. You know, all we know is that people told us to dust ourselves off. Why do people say throw dirt on it? I think it's from a movie line. I know they'd say it in Wildcats with Woody Harrelson and Goldie Hawn, but I'm sure that's probably not the first time. Yeah, it's like you a hear thing it. people say, like throw some dirt on Rub it. Rub some dirt on Rub it. Rub some dirt on the it. The reason that that's funny is because basically ignore everything and yeah. rubbing dirt on any type of open wound probably isn't that good of an idea. <laughs> and that's why it's funny. Get up, make it worse, and yeah. you know, move on. And so basically, the message that kids get is, and that we got, because again, the majority of this book is really about figuring ourselves out so that we can better understand our kids is that that whatever feeling they're feeling is wrong that they should probably feel bad about feeling it that they should pretend they're not feeling it and they should move forward without addressing it so that's a lot of that's a lot of um that's challenging i can't talk about chakra two without bringing up one of your favorite teachers so i'm going to play a little clip okay that do you have any idea who your teacher is uh-uh. Won't you be? Won't you be? It's my guy. Why is Fred Rogers so important to you? Well, there's the personal story of being very young and watching him all the time and having him tell me that I was important and special and that it was okay to be sad. And I actually write in the book that my mom used to tell me all the time when I was young, like, he's really important to you. Like she would, she knew that whatever he was saying, I was totally picking up. Like I, I totally appreciated his ability to talk about everything. If it be our joy and goodness and also our difficulty and that life can sometimes feel dark. He talked about all of it. And then as I grew up and I started studying, um, you know, Western medicine, you know, becoming a therapist and focusing on Eastern concepts and just understanding neurobiology better, I realized that like his way of being, Mr. Rogers, what he did is probably the most emotionally intelligent version of a human that there is. Without knowing any of the science behind Mm -hmm. it, he just, that's how he he showed up in the world. It was. And he was very, and something interesting, Todd, just a little story. When uh, I was talking to the publisher that who who published this book, when we were first just negotiating and talking about whether or not he was going to publish this book, he told me that the book he was working on in the moment was a Mr. Rogers book. Mm. And I was like, oh, like that's yeah. like, to me, that's a big sign, right? Like that's, there's so You're in much, the right place. I'm in the right place, right? Um, you have another section on creativity and mm-hmm. I don't want to spend a lot of time on here. The sure. only thing that I wanted to highlight was you talk about Dr. Randy Pausch in the mm-hmm. book, who's the guy who died. He wrote, he did the last lecture, it went viral. Did he die of pancreatic cancer? Mm-hmm. Um, and 
you write or you quote him, anybody out there who's a parent, if you if your kids want to paint their bedrooms, as a favor to me, let them do it. It will be okay. Don't worry about resale value of the house. I don't know how many more times I will get to visit my childhood home, but it is a gift every time I go there. Anything you want to share regarding creativity? I just think our ability to recognize that our houses or especially our children's homes are not a show for the outside world, <laughs> that instead they are a place to find comfort and a feeling of belonging and connection. And for some kids, that means being able to use their creativity, maybe in the color that they choose, in the way that they decorate their room, um, in their ability to do something so outrageous, like right on their wall. Um, it's funny, JC, my oldest daughter just came home and she was visiting one of her good friends at Columbia College, which is kind of, it's an art school. And that there is actually a room in the, below all the dorms. It's just this huge room where all the students can go in there and graffiti. And mm. they can just write whatever they want and graffiti because you've got this university full of creative kids and they knew that there needed to be an outlet. And the truth is that all of us are creative. It's not about who's the best art student or who's winning awards. We all have these creative impulses. And if our kids know that they can do what they want with their space, and I, and I even say beyond that, like our whole house, all of our framed pictures are our kids' artwork. Um, you know, like if they can see their creativity everywhere, yeah. um, I think it really enhances their sense of inner discovery and sense of belonging. Well, and I would, I guess, add to that is creativity. And I think you, I'm sure you say it somewhere in the chapter is the importance of play. Yeah. Uh, the importance to take ourselves less seriously, the importance of levity. Um, it's a big part of parenting that I think often gets overlooked. Well, and again, attaching this to emotional intelligence, we're, we're all so focused again on IQ and reading and math, and we forget that a big part of brain development and understanding who we are in the world is based on our ability to be creative. And sometimes, in ma I'm not going to even say sometimes, math does not give us a lot of creative opportunities. Sweetie, a lot of mathematicians are <laughs> saying, bite your tongue, young lady. Okay. So there are mathematicians who are like, of course it does. Okay. And I totally hear that. But traditional math in the school system has a right answer. Yeah, the rules. Okay. And oftentimes, unfortunately, it's the truth with literacy. I get so frustrated when I hear about a book and then there's a test, like a multiple choice test about the book because literacy, literature is supposed to open our minds to our own ideas. But sometimes we get really focused on there's a right answer there too. So, you know, writing, if there is an English class that allows us to expand the way we look at things, that's a great way to be creative. I but judge that you have a story from your childhood where a teacher <laughs> told you something. <laughs> what do you mean? I, I'm almost positive you told me that somebody, you were answering a question, you were probably like oh. in third grade. The, the story that I think I told you or that I shared all the time is that I used to um, raise my hand all the time and offer kind of perspective on something we were reading. Mm. And I tended to look at things differently. I thought, well, I think this character was thinking this and was hoping for this. And the teacher would, and it wasn't just one teacher, they would say, no, that's not right. Next person. Mm. And I would think to myself, wow, well, I totally saw it this way. And I had a few opportunities where I would actually go and tell another adult who had read the book, you know, I thought this and they're like, oh, that's really interesting. That could be. And I started to learn that literature, just like I said, is not about one right answer. How, um, how has that impacted the way you teach? Well, it's part of the reason I became a teacher is I wanted students to be able to raise their hand. And the thing that I say to students is... Um, 
is when they give me an answer and maybe it seems a little left of center, like I'm not sure where they came from, all I say to them is tell me how you got there. Mm. Because usually there's a great story to how they got there in their head. They're like, well, I think this person did this and this person did this and then they ended up with this idea. And it's usually a super creative way of thinking and it makes sense and sometimes it opens up the conversation to something more interesting. So I'm just not a fan of there's only one way to look at this. I think even if the kid is really left to center with their answer, even just saying, tell me how you got there. And then you can say at the end, oh, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's not going Instead to Instead of saying, eh, wrong. Right. All right. Yeah. Uh, last but not least, okay. our last topic. When does the line start? It comes. You're playing like long beginning. Oh, am I? Come on. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about All right. You can write a book on this and you only were able to give it a few pages because you're trying to put so many things in this book. Well, the good news is, is that I actually have a whole opening section about sex education where I talk about it. I also have a whole section about sexuality and gender where I talk about it. Um, so there's different parts of this book that talk about sexuality. Um, so where I want to start is where I, I think you and I usually start whenever we teach some type of sex ed class to parents mm-hmm. is certain parents... Mm, judgment. Mm-hmm. Why do I need to talk about this? Because I turned out fine. So before you give your answer, okay. I'm always like, I think, like I'm trying to think, like what's the percentage of human beings that have a healthy, a re- like really healthy relationship with sex and sexuality? I'm guessing it's like less than 5%. I think mine's fine, but I still know that there's a ton of work for me to process through. So whenever parents are like, oh, I turned out fine, I'm just like, you're an upstanding human being, but could we do this a little bit better? So I just wonder where you want to go with this. Yeah, like I don't know the percentage. I'd be lying if I made something up, but I do know that I've been working with people in a therapeutic way for the last 20 years, and I haven't met a lot of people who... Now, they may have a hard-earned understanding of their sexuality and their um, awareness around their own sexual needs and pleasure, meaning that they've can you know put some some time into understanding themselves, some therapy, maybe some couples therapy where they've like worked toward understanding. But Gen X, like us as parents right now, and probably even, you know, older millennials, um, it just, it, it, most parents, except for really early adopters of sex positive parenting, Mm. um, did not get a lot of information. And there are still, depending on where you live, There are school systems, um, societies, communities that teach abstinence only or no sex ed at all. And so, and and then if you have a parent who's not talking about it in the home, then you are learning about sex through the media, through your peers, and through uh, success and failure, Mm -hmm. which, you know, we all need a little support in every area of our life. And if we could give our kids... um, kind of a a leg up on understanding what 
you know, what's going on in their bodies, what their feelings, because the thing about sex education, I, I talk about this earlier in the book is it's not just about the mechanics of sex. It's about sexual feelings. The it's mechanics about, is the easy part. Yeah. That's like the plumbing of our body. Like, you know, big deal. That's biology. It's about sexual feelings, sexual identity, what brings us pleasure, understanding our body, understanding the way it works, not just the plumbing, but like where the pleasure centers of our body are and that they're different for every human. And that a lot of times, you know, I'm talking about women and girls, but I know men and boys, they don't get enough instruction either. And they, you know, I'm, they don't know what they're doing. Okay. And <laughs> there is like this whole belief then, though, but why this comes back to an understanding of women and culture of that women are somehow impaired or doing it wrong or frigid because the man is doing this very like. We're doing what we see in porn. Exactly. This pornographic version of what they think sex is. And they don't even understand the woman or the, um, the man or whatever partner, you know, whatever gender they are experiencing, um, whoever they are with, they don't understand their body and they're not listening to them. And so there's this whole, or, you know, and it's in the mixture of like not speaking and not listening is a completely broken down system. Sometimes it's just one or the other, but a lot of times both sides are broken down. Sweetie, so, can we take a lesson from Monica Della, Monica Geller regarding the erogenous zones? <laughs> well, you don't have to draw an actual, wo whoa, she's hot. <laughs> now everybody knows the basic erogenous zones. You got one, two, three. Four, five, six, and seven. There are seven. That's Chandler. Let me see that. Oh, yeah. It's a good two-minute clip. <laughs> it is. It is. And that is like... Chandler didn't know there was more than three. No, and I think most people watching that are like, what? Where? I yeah. want to see the picture. Right. You know, like everybody is... And, you know, I don't go deeply into porn in this book, but... You know, I think you guys talk about that a lot in Men Living, don't you, Todd? Yeah, we just had Dr. Solomon on there, and yeah, yeah we, talked all, we talked all about it. And we have a bunch of Zen Parenting Radio podcasts where we talk about it, and there's a lot of other books out there, experts who talk about it, but th porn has really changed the way that couples, um, college students, you know, relate to sex, and it's become a lot more performative rather than really what I need and what feels good to me. And basically just getting back to the book, you know, chakra two is about understanding your own pleasure and your own sexual needs. And that necessitates a lot of self-awareness, some um, understanding of yourself and a willingness to talk about it with a partner. And that can sometimes take a lot of work. Can I read a quote from your book? Sure. We can worry less about having the perfect answers and more about being able to have space for the questions. Mm -hmm. And that this is in regards to when your kids ask you questions and if you get scared or stuck and you don't know how to answer. I just wonder if you want to share more about that. Well, yeah, I think sometimes as parents, we need to have, we feel we need to have final answers when it comes to sex or sexuality. So our kids will ask us a question. And if we don't feel like we have the perfect answer, we won't answer at all. Or we'll make them feel bad about asking the question, which is even worse because then we're combining shame with asking about sexuality, which is one of the most normal human experiences ever. Like biologically, we're built to be sexual beings. So it's like for them to ask a question and for us to make them feel bad doesn't make any sense. Um, or if we do, it can cause some damage. So basically what I'm saying is that we 
it's okay to either A, say, you know what, that's such a good question. I really want to take some time and think about it. And then I'm going to come back to you with an answer. Or we offer a little more off the cuff answer, but say, you know what, I'm still kind of developing my own understanding of this. And this is an open conversation. And, you know, let's keep talking about this. And if I have other thoughts about it, I'm going to bring it to you. Basically, sex is not a one-time talk with a child. It's not a birds and the bees conversation. It's an open conversation, an ongoing communication about an aspect of their lives that they will be dealing with experiencing, hopefully until they're very, very, very old, until they're not here anymore. One of the most important statements in your in this chapter is that you say, when I offer sex ed talk for parents, I open by asking, what question do you ask? Do you remember? You know, what do you hope your kids experience as far as their sex lives go in the future? And how many of us parents, so like, this is a good litmus test. Like if you're listening to this, you're probably a parent, you have kids. Have you ever considered what you want for your children as they grow into adulthood regarding their sex lives? And I would guess that most people say, well, I just want to keep them safe or something like mm-hmm. that, but they haven't really thought it through. And as I kind of try to answer off the cup, I, I hope that my daughters have a really awesome and responsible experience with sex. It's something that is this wonderful thing that all, for some reason always has shame attached mm-hmm. to it. And we all know enough about shame that the the reason it's shameful is because we hide it. We don't talk about it. So it's like, can we create an environment in our household where it's talked about? And it's usually, the answer is usually no, because we haven't processed through our own shame about it. Well, and it's like the other word I would add to what you just said is awesome, um, responsible, meaning that being thoughtful about your choices and taking responsibility for your own behavior and being responsible about asking for what you need or having what you need, and also educated where they understand where they can get access to, it, it may be birth control or information or support or whatever they need to, you know, or or just like community support where you have friendships, where you can talk about these things with people. Like education is again, not just about mechanics of the body, but about I'm having these feelings or I'm confused about if I, if I'm ready to, to take this next step with this person, or if it's the right time. And it's not just about kids. Like a lot of times we parent thinking our kids are always going to be teenagers. So we use a lot of fear and we use a lot of language to make them afraid of sex, but we forget that they're only teenagers for a short amount of time and that then they're going into their twenties carrying the same shame and, and fear. And we, it's hard to dismantle that. And so how can we instead talk to our kids openly, teach them about responsibility, consent, you know, body understanding and educate them about where they can get what they need to keep themselves safe. So I want to offer two more resources. Sure. We did two interviews way back when, four years ago, with Mike Domish. Uh, the first one was called "Building a Culture of Consent and Respect." A, a discussion with Mike Domich, Domich from the Date Safe Project. That's podcast number three hundred forty-seven. Then we had another discussion with him about a year later, and it's called "Me Too." So what now? An interview with Mike Domish. So we are huge fans of his work. He wrote a book called "Can I Kiss You?" It's all about consent. It's the one thing that I never, ever remember hearing when I was growing up about 
sexuality and discussions. And it's, in my judgment, the missing link that needs so much more attention than it's currently getting. Well, you know, really the bottom line is how to treat ourselves and the people that we are in partnership with, with dignity and realizing our own choices and about understanding that we have to respect another's choices. Like it really breaks down to these very general ideas of dignity and respect and staying within our own integrity. And so this kind of overlaps with other chakras too. Um, our sexuality is not freestanding. And when I'm talking about sexuality, I don't mean our preference, but just our overall umbrella of understanding our sexual needs. Um, it overlaps with empathy. It overlaps with compassion. It overlaps with a sense of belonging. So um, it's very um, intricate and essential as well, far as our parenting. And in closing, mm -hmm. um, you have these sections of the book at the end of each chapter for you and for your kids. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to read through what I thought was interesting. And then if you just want to like say a few things and then we'll close up uh, for you regarding pleasure, do you feel guilt? So that's like an invitation for us to check where do we feel guilty so we have some work of our own to do um what are you doing to model creativity i think as parents we lose our creative side and then regarding sex you already said it short ongoing discussions that's for you for your kids don't judge or shame them uh we didn't talk about this but just because they're dancing in the living room doesn't mean that they need to get into a dancing class right and then lastly correct words for body parts. Yeah. So anything that you want to riff off of there? Well, sweetie? I will say just to give, you know, people like some, uh, some, some things that they can go listen to or read, I would go research, um, how the Netherlands, um, teaches sex education. There's actually a great book by Bonnie Ruff called, um, something birds and the bees, Bonnie Ruff, R O U G H. It's, it's, I read it, it's on my shelf in that other room and I used it in the book too, but it's about her experience of living in Amsterdam and how she, you know, she was raising her child there and how different it is when it comes to talking about sex education. It begins when they're four and people will be like, Oh, you know, how could they do that? They don't talk to them about things that aren't uh, child developmentally yeah. appropriate. They start the discussion about feelings and about understanding your own body and trusting yourself because they know sex education is not just about mechanics. It's, it's about relationships and all of these pieces. So reading about how other countries navigate sex education is really interesting because our country is way, way behind. We're ve For a country that is so focused on sex, because you look around at every billboard and it's like women's bodies. Skylar and I, my daughter and I were just uh, driving today. And we we saw an advertisement for something and it had a woman on the cover and it had nothing to do with women. It had nothing to do with her body, but we use women's bodies to advertise for everything. And just about how sexuality is used for everything, yet we don't talk to our kids about it and we pretend we're not obsessed with it. So it's this really interesting discussion, um, but it begins with, like you said, Todd, researching yourself and how do you feel about it? Because whatever you feel will be passed down to your children unless you have some self-awareness and some new understanding about yourself and sexuality as a whole. So uh, in closing, uh, tomorrow is chakra three, the right to act, mm -hmm. establishing our identity and sense of self. So join us tomorrow for Chakra 3. Adios.
Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have appreciated or enjoyed a decade of Zen Parenting Radio podcasts, please tell a friend or leave a five-star review. We are grateful for your support. Remember to register for our Zen Parenting Virtual Summit, where you will learn from 15 thought leaders and learn more about Kathy's book, Zen Parenting, Caring for Ourselves and Our Children in an Unpredictable World. If you want more Zen Parenting, consider joining Team Zen, pre-ordering my new book, or subscribing to Zen Parenting Moment. You can find these opportunities and more at zenparentingradio.com resources. It's our new page where you can find everything we do in one place. If you want to connect through social networking, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Keep trucking, and we'll talk to you again next week.